Good morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This text and this sermon should be one of rejoicing. Because as we go into another transition in the book of Mark's gospel, we are transitioning into the final week of Jesus' life. His final entry into Jerusalem. And Mark uses six chapters, one-third of the, of the gospel, to address this week. You think he thinks this is important? You think there's, there's some things that, that Mark wants to emphasize here? And in each of the gospel writers, here comes the, the climax and the encouragement of the book, even though up until the last few moments, it is one of the most sad and discouraging moments in the book. And this is not a discouraging moment. But it has some discouraging undertones. But we, as people on the other side of the cross, should approach this and see this joyfully. And so one of the things I just want to bring to your mind before we get into the text is, often we, we read Scripture and we read accounts like this, especially if you've been in the church for a while, if you've read through your Bible a few times, and you go through the Gospels. This is one of the few accounts that is in all four Gospels. You tend to read over what we normally would call the, the triumphal entry as just another account. Or maybe you grew up in church and you wave palm branches around and it was the one time as a kid you got to stand up and, and do something and so you thought it was cool but you have no idea why. And I think many of us, we read a text like this and we go, okay, we know it has something to do with Jesus as king and we know it has something to do with preparing him for the cross but what exactly was Jesus trying to convey in this? And so there, there is a lot of symbolism we're going to look at this morning. I think the other thing that works against us is that we're not Jewish. We didn't grow up studying the Hebrew Scriptures. We didn't grow up committing to memory the promises that, that were given to our forefathers that we expected to see in our nation in our lifetime. And so we're going to kind of deal with some of those expectations. And then also, we don't live in the ancient Near East, or we don't live in the, in, in the Middle East now. So the idea of someone riding on a donkey is just strange and the pictures of branches and people taking off their, their, their clothes, we, don't, we also don't have a monarchy. So all of these, these images are very foreign to us. So hopefully, by digging into our text and, and hopefully by going through the details here and why Jesus does what he does, you'll see why this is significant. And it is rife with symbolism and messianic fulfillment. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through the text going to look at a lot of parallels, so have your Bibles, uh, and then we'll do some application and encouragement at the end. So in your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. I'm going to read verse 1 through verse 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who were following were shouting, 
Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Lord, we, we love you, we praise you. We come before you this morning as people, if we are indeed in Christ, we of all people have reason to be joyful. We of all people have reason to exalt you. We of all people have no reason to fear or worry or dread because our King has come. Our King has conquered Our King is reigning, and we await His coming again. Help us, Lord, to approach this text this morning with eyes to see and ears to hear, with spiritual discernment, that Your Word would speak to us afresh and anew, that would increase our zeal for the kingdom of our Father, They would increase our joy and the kingship of the Son. They would increase our trust and the counsel and help of the Spirit. That we might honor our God with every fiber of our being and glorify Him with our speech, our thoughts, our affections, and our actions, and encourage one another in the gospel for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want you to see about this text is that in Jesus' ministry, He never brings attention to Himself. Never makes any action or or does anything that, that will get people to look at Him except here. This is the only thing that He initiates and that he voluntarily brings to himself. This is the only time in the Gospels. Up to this point, and Mark doesn't get into this as much, John does a lot, but the Pharisees have been trying to find a time to kill him. The Pharisees have been plotting to murder him. And those who hate him want to take his life. And those who want him to be their king now have been trying to make him their king for some time. But Jesus does is not beholden to the times and seasons of men. Now that it is His time, now that He makes His final approach into the city of the living God, now is when He has actions and gives direction that brings attention to Himself. The other amazing thing, that He brings attention to Himself, also He does it without a word. Any prideful, arrogant man who is... is, thirsty for attention, would have given a bold speech, would have brought everyone closer to listen, would have welcomed all of the accolades he was receiving. But Jesus, humble and quiet, rides into the city of Zion, rides right to the temple where worship and praise is given to the living God. And he is silent and contemplative. And his gaze is fixed around the city. So why does he do this? Why these type of actions in this type of way 
Well, one, most importantly, to fulfill Scripture. One thing we have to realize is that the word in flesh and that the word in writing is always in agreement. The word in flesh and the word in writing, they're always in agreement. Jesus will not do anything contrary to the revealed word of God. Jesus is, in fact, God revealed in flesh. And so everything that the people were looking forward to and maybe didn't understand fully and everything that the prophets prophesied about up to this point will find their fulfillment in him. And so we're going to look at a lot of this, these expectations and this fulfillment. So let's, let's jump right in. Verse 1. Now when they drew, drew near to Jerusalem, so let's think about timing here. Uh, we are going to look quite a bit at the other Gospels because it helps to bring a fullness of the picture in. So John gives us the timing here. That he was anointed by Mary on the, the, the evening of the Sabbath. This would be Sunday morning. This would be the, the first day of the week when they're entering into Jerusalem. The preparations are getting ready for the Passover celebration. And all of Israel has come from far and wide. This is one of the three festivals in which every man in Israel was commanded to come into Jerusalem. Jesus also, as a faithful Jew, and his disciples with him make their way in. And so they are now drawing near to the city. And, but I also want you to be situationally aware as well as symbolically. So geographically where we are. So there will be a, a map up on, on the screen. And I think, it's, I think it's helpful to kind of see where Jesus has traveled. Um, if you have the ESV study Bible, I just, the, these are from that. So we see Galilee further in the north. Capernaum at the top of the Sea of Galilee. That's kind of Jesus' home base. And he has made his way down along the, the Jordan River and coming down south to Jerusalem. So he's made his way in Perea beyond the Jordan. Coming back over last week, he was in Jericho. Now he's kind of making his final entrance into Bethany and Bethphage. And so he takes a, a Roman road that, that, that goes between mountains and that is the natural path of travelers. And on that road, one to the north, we have Bethphage, and to the south, we have Bethany. And so Bethany, if you're familiar, John spends a lot of time with Jesus in Bethany because this is where Mary and Martha lived. This is where Lazarus, the one who Jesus cries over, is raised from the dead. This is where he often stays with his disciples. This is where he will stay with the disciples. He will, in the next few chapters in Mark, we'll see him make journeys to Jerusalem and back to Bethany, to Jerusalem and back to Bethany to teach and to take part in the festivities and remain in Bethany. But there's another little town north of Bethany called Bethphage, and you can go to the um, next slide. Bethphage, it is the, it, in uh, Hebrew, it is house of unripe figs. That will be important over the next few weeks. The, the uh, phagium is, uh, is the, the little buds that grow on a fig tree that are not yet ready to eat. So as you get closer, I want you to kind of see situationally where, where we are. So the Mount of Olives, which plays a huge part in, in, in the um, prophetic ministries of Isaiah and of Ezekiel and of Daniel and of Zechariah, is the, the, the mountain that is, about, uh, that is to the east, okay, so to the right of, this is Jerusalem. You've got the uh, Temple Mount directly in front of it. So when we get in chapter 13 and Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and teaching about what will happen, he is overlooking the Temple. 
And right on the other side of the mountain of Mount of Olives is Bethphage. So the mountain separates the city of uh, fig farmers from the Temple Mount. And the Mount of Olives is about 300 feet higher. So from the Mount of Olives, you can see all of, all of Jerusalem. It's got a great purview. There's a lot of symbolism there. And, um, and there's a great contrast because the Mount of Olives is covered with olive trees. Go figure. But the olive trees in Scripture are always positive. Olives, olive trees, olive oil is always a good thing. But figs are most often negative. And there's a reason for that. We'll flesh that out a little bit uh, next week. So the theme that we're going to see in the next three chapters is Jesus in the temple. And Jesus in fulfillment of worship in the contrast between the Mount of Olives, where Ezekiel says that the new covenant promises are going to be fulfilled in the Mount of Olives, and where Zechariah says the final judgment will take place in the Mount of Olives. This is kind of God's announcing place. Versus Bethphage, which is the house of unripe figs, a kind of deceitful parabolic fruit that Jesus is going to spend more time on. Uh, we'll, we'll spend more time on next week. So Mark is, is setting up here the imagery and the symbolism and the geography. These towns are about two miles away from Jerusalem. And so they would, they would walk in these kind of rocky, uneven roads every day. And so as we're getting ready for Jesus to make this entrance, I wanted you to see he's, he's heading from east to west. He's making his way into the village in this kind of main, or into the city of Jerusalem in this main Roman road. Uh, and so now we can see why people would, would, would come together and his entrance would be so dramatic. And so now I want to get into these, these details that Jesus gives as he directs his disciples. Because this is kind of strange. I mean, these aren't common things. But everything that Jesus does has some significance to the people of Israel. And these, these directions for us would raise some questions. But again, the answer is the same. Why does Jesus do this? To fulfill Scripture. And the symbolism is rich. So the first thing I want you to see as we get into verse 2, and Jesus says, Go into the vi- village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Let's look at a couple things. First, the first prophecy of someone on a colt is all the way back in Genesis. And so Genesis 49, as Jacob is blessing his sons, and Jacob's sons are a mess. And they are not worthy of any real blessings, except the younger ones. But Judah, who is in the kingly line because his older brothers are worse off than, than he is. And so here is the, the promise to Judah. The scepter, this is the king's staff with his signet on, on top of it. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. This is the tribe which Jesus will come from. Remember last week, we looked at Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David. It is important that Jesus came through David, David also from the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is the kingly power. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is the nation's. There will be an obedience and a submission to this king, to this house, from all peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. So the the Israelites 
loved wine. They loved to drink. One, they didn't have good water, but wine is good. So anytime you see wine, anytime you see vine, it's a sign of abundance. It's a sign of celebration. And so when he ties his, his, his colt and the donkey's colt to the choice vine, he is showing that this kingdom, this kingdom is one of abundance. This kingdom is one of celebration. And even further, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This sounds very graphic, but this is another way of saying he's very wealthy. He's got so much wine, he's swimming in it. He's got so much wine that he can bathe and take laps in his pool of wine. This is how rich this kingdom is. This is how rich the king of Judah will be. And we'll get more to the, uh, the donkey in just a moment or the colt. So this idea of a king with a colt and the, the tribe of Judah goes all the way back to the inception of Israel as a nation. As Jacob prophesies over his sons, uh, even prior to the Exodus. So, that's number one. But the big one is Zechariah 9. This is in direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9. Matthew and John quote this directly. But I want you to turn there. So if you don't know where Zechariah is, go to the beginning of the New Testament, which is Matthew. And then you got Malachi. is the last book of the Old Testament. And one book further. And you'll get in Zechariah. Zechariah uh, has so much prophetic fulfillment and expectation going forward. And Zechariah 9 is a very important chapter. So I want to walk through this. I want to bring some things to your attention. There is a promised Messiah. There is a promised anointed one coming to the people of God, coming from God. And his kingdom, his rule will be known by peace and power. The first thing I want to start off in verse 9. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. These are synonymous. If you are a daughter of Zion, if you are a daughter of Jerusalem, you belong to the people of God, and their center of worship and cultic life took place in Jerusalem. This prophecy is one for rejoicing. Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud. Don't be quiet about this. This is good news. Proclaim this from the rooftops. Behold, your king is coming to you. These are, these are important words for the Jews who have been conquered by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, who are oppressed by Rome, who long for the days of David, who long for the days of Solomon, who long for a king to call their own when they can be triumphant over their enemies. Your king is coming to you. This is a king who knows his people and cares for his people. And two of his attributes are inseparable. Righteous and having salvation is he. You cannot separate these two. There is no salvation without righteousness, and there is no righteousness apart from salvation. They needed a savior, and typically when you, we're, we're New Testament Christians, and so when we read salvation in the Old Testament, we read salvation from sin, we read redemption from death, but most often, if you're a Hebrew reader, you're reading salvation from enemies. You're reading deliverance from oppression or from slavery, temporal salvation, but the prophets knew, and the prophets bring these two together. Salvation is not just being delivered from enemies. It is being delivered from sin. You need righteousness. And this is a Savior who will not just save you 
from your enemies, but from yourself and give you his righteousness because that's who he is. This is the type of king that you can expect. But he's not the arrogant, bloodthirsty kings that they have often seen. It's not like the selfish, idolatrous kings or the whoring kings that seek for self-pleasure. This is a king who is humble. So humble he is mounted on a donkey. Now here's where this comes in. Here's where, where the donkey's cult comes in. The donkey is an animal of peace. The horse is an animal of war. We'll see that in just a moment. But someone who rides on a donkey is not winning any battles. A king would, would show that he comes in peace if he rides on a donkey when he goes to meet with another king. And so this beast of burden had a lot of imagery associated with it. But not just a donkey, a little one. A very non-threatening donkey. A cute little donkey that can barely hold someone up to make sure that you know this is a king of peace. And that's what verse 10 means. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Ephraim was the most numerous of the, the, the tribes of Israel. I will cut off the chariot, meaning there will be no more war. And the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow should be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is his kingdom. This is what they are to look forward to. And as for you also, why does God do this? Why is he promising something new? Why is he promising this type of king? Because of the blood of my covenant with you. There is a promise of a new covenant sealed with blood that God would make with his people that would confirm all of this. I will set you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is a euphemism for the grave. This new covenant in righteousness, and in salvation will give you freedom from death. This is the king who is coming. This is the king who has come. All these things will take place as Zechariah prophesies. And once they do, the people are to look forward to something else that will take place. Look at verse 14. Then, after all of these things, the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The king came a first time. The king is coming again. The first time he comes in peace. The first time he comes on a donkey. The second time is a little different. And God will sound the trumpet and he will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. This is battle language. First time he comes on a donkey. Second time he comes on a horse. The Lord of hosts will protect them. His people don't have to fear his sword. And they shall devour and tread down the sling stones implied of the enemies. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. The first one is peace. The second one is a bloody battle, a bloodbath. Wine is a good sign of abundance, but it is also a sign of blood and wrath and destruction. But on that day, the Lord their God will save them as a flock of His people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on His land. 
For how great is his goodness and how great is beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Wine is good again. So in the same prophecy of Zechariah, what type of king they would expect in this messianic reign, there's also an, an expectation of his next return. The problem is Israel expected, expected both of these to happen at the same time. They wanted the king who came in peace on a donkey and the king who destroyed their enemies to happen right after one another. But what happens when we read the prophets is the prophets see visions of the Lord sometimes years and decades and centuries apart. And this is what is happening here. So this is the context of what Jesus is fulfilling. And this is why Matthew and John read them. Mark, writing to a Greek audience, is, is not as concerned with his Old Testament fulfillment. But I want you to see that. This is a declarative act. The king has come. His kingdom is peaceful. He has come to save. He has come in righteousness. He has, cor- he has come according to the blood of the new covenant. But they couldn't see that this is a victory lap to the cross. This is a victory lap before the, the, the battle has even been won. A victory lap to lay down his life. The prince of peace is also a lamb who leads himself to the slaughter. And this is one of the times when I kind of like the King James language of riding on an ass. Because today if you sound that, it makes it sound like a piggyback ride or something. Some of your, some of your friends might be that ass. I, know. I love when you can say things like that in church. It's biblical. And this donkey, this ass that he rode on, had never been sat on by anyone else. This is another important detail. Why is that important? There was a sacredness to unbroken beasts of burden, meaning they had never been ridden on, they had never been, been, been used for common manual labor. They are set apart for a specific purpose. In the Old Testament, unbroken beasts of burden, an unbroken donkey's colt, was the only one that was acceptable for a purification offering. If you had wrote it, he was no longer acceptable. It was the only one that was acceptable for unsolved murders. So you could offer this, uh, this donkey who had not been ridden. And, most importantly, this is the only animal that was acceptable for a king to ride on. No one else rode on the king's animals. If anyone else rode on it, it was unacceptable for a king. No one touched the king's horse. No one touched the king's donkey. That is why it is important that it is an, that an animal that no one ever sat on. Everything for the king must be solely for the king. He had an unused animal just like he had an unused womb and an unused tomb. Jesus does not get leftovers. He is not coming on someone else's heels. Everything is prepared specifically for him. And so when he tells them to untie it and bring it, you can expect someone to ask, hey, where are you going with my donkey? If anyone says to you, verse 3, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Lord, the common word kurios in the New Testament. It means master as in my master, but it also could mean Lord, the Lord of Israel. Both are intended here. And those who own the cult will know the meaning. The Lord has need of it. 
I love this picture. The Lord of glory, the creator of all things, who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, is going to use someone else's donkey. He's going to get one in a village because he has no possessions of his own. I love this. That throughout Jesus' ministry, he uses other people's resources for kingdom ends. And he still does. He doesn't need someone else's donkey. He doesn't need your tithes. He doesn't need your time. He doesn't need your gifts. But he chooses to use our stewardship for his glory. Our God brings his people into his plan of redemption. He saves sinners through our meager little efforts. He builds up the body through our meager little gifts. He accomplishes his purpose with everyday ordinary means, with everyday ordinary people. And we often think we're not important enough to be used by God. We often think we don't have enough to bring to the table. There's not enough zeros in our bank account. There's there's not enough abilities within us. God needs someone more special than me. He uses donkeys in poor people in small agricultural towns to praise his glory. And he still does. The Lord has need of it, and he'll send it back. It has one purpose and one purpose only. He's not keeping it. He'll send it back when he's done. And so verse 4, so we go from the direction to the, the, the fulfillment. This, it's executed, of course, as Jesus said it would be. And they went away, and they found a colt, tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there were saying, Where do you, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus said, and they let him go. Of course they did. And when they let them go, they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. I love this. Again, it tells you what type of king this is. This king does not come with chariots. He does not come with an armed guard. He doesn't even come with his own saddle. He sits on someone else's coat. That is the type of king he is. And not just their cloaks. Many, verse 8, spread their cloaks on the ground, on the road, and others spread leafy branches and they cut them to the fields. So, a couple things. What is this spreading of the, the cloak thing? Um, in ancient times, and even some monarchies still, they would roll out a carpet, or they would have something for kings and queens to step on so their feet wouldn't step on the ground. This is an old tradition. Look at 2 Kings 9. It'll be on the screen quickly. Then in haste, every man of them took his garments and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. This is a sign. This is a visible symbol of a king. This is coronation language. People taking their cloaks and, cloaks and putting it on the ground so that the king may walk on it. That their king has their allegiance. That they will submit themselves under their, their king. This is putting themselves under his authority. And then they cut down branches from the field. And John adds palm trees. This is another celebratory thing that, that we're not used to. We have so many palm trees here that we trim them and we throw them out and we, and we burn them. But 
the, the palms are, they are stately, regal plants that look like a king's crown. That's why the, the temple stones were, de- were decorated with palm branches. They were also what you would wave when you celebrate the, the coming of a visiting king. When a neighbor king would come into your kingdom, you would send out a processional before him that they would wave these, these palm branches and wave branches as a sign of welcome and as a sign of celebration. None of these symbols are by accident. And then it comes to the people. Here's the situation in verse 9. And those who went before and those who were following were shouting. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, I want to spend a good amount of time here. But first, do not read over this quickly. Do not just see these details as another time of praise or insignificant words. Before we read through Mark, I want want you to look at Luke. Turn to Luke. Look at Luke's account in Luke 19. I think Luke gives a more vivid picture, and you will have to turn there because the entire text is not on the screen. Luke 19, beginning in verse 37. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, kind of shows you Jesus' path, the whole multitude of his disciples... So not just the twelve, everyone else who was following began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. This is not some somber processional. This is a celebration. All of his disciples, all of them began to praise God. Imagine the clamor and the excitement. Because if you were here and we did our John study, when the Jewish people partied, they partied. When they celebrated the Feast of, of Booths, The rabbis were doing flips, literally. They were breathing fire. They were on 75-foot pillars. They were not stoic, dark-age monks. Jesus' disciples are celebrating, and not only does he not correct them, look what he tells the Pharisees in just a moment. So the disciples are celebrating with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They were preaching and proclaiming what Jesus had done saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to teacher, Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. How important is this? That if his disciples don't praise him, that if his disciples don't shout and rejoice in the Lord for what he's done, the rocks will. This is incredible. God is so great. He must be praised at all times. If if we don't, the rocks and the trees will. And we should. Like these disciples, they had seen the miracles. They had seen walking on water. They had seen the multiplying of the loaves. They had seen the healing of the blind. They had seen Lazarus raised to life. And they praised God for it. We have been raised to life. Shouldn't we have just as much reason to shout for joy? Shouldn't we be joyful people because our God 
has miracles in each one of us who are in Christ. And if we don't, the rocks will. We of all people should be joyful. We of all people should celebrate and praise what our God has done for us. And we are far too busy navel-gazing, looking down, worried about ourselves, beating ourselves up for our insufficiencies, focusing on our little wrongs or other people's wrongs. When our God has done great things, our God has done great things in us, and our God is doing great things in us, and His people have always celebrated, and we ought to be people who celebrate as well. Amen. So now that you kind of got the scene, I want to back up a little bit. This is the festival of Passover. Why were they celebrating in Passover? Why was this such a big deal? Because they're celebrating their salvation and their understanding from Egypt. They were saved. They were delivered. They were brought out of slavery. They were taken out of the hands of the oppressors. They were taken, out of, taken away from making bricks without enough straw. Going to their own land. And every time they celebrated Passover, under the rule of Rome, they wonder, when are we going to be delivered from Rome? Like we were delivered from Egypt. When are we going to be brought out of our slavery? When are we going to be free from our oppression? But what they didn't see is that their greater need than freedom from Rome is freedom from their sins. Their greatest, their greatest need was not freedom in general, but it was righteousness in the Lord. Their greatest need was not to have a king in this life, but to have a king with a kingdom that would not end. And this certainly was not the king that they were expecting. So look at the language here of Mark. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting. So you've got Jesus leading the way, his disciples, the crowds coming with him. Now you've got the people between Bethphage and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is hearing about us. They are running to Jesus. They're, they're coming behind Jesus. The whole city is in an uproar. Jerusalem at that time was a city of about 200,000 people. For the time of Passover, it became a city of 2 million. So these crowds coming to celebrate are seeing a celebration and they're being brought. And they shouted. Thousands upon thousands of people shouting. This is why the crowd grew. This is why people were running. Everyone wants to see what's going on. And there's a symbolic parallelism here. We see Hosanna, a blessed Messiah, a blessed kingdom, and then Hosanna again. And I want to look at each one of these. And so this is in the context of Psalm 118 that we read earlier. So I want you to turn to Psalm 118. I want to bring a few things to your attention. So Psalm 118 is the climax of the Hillel Psalms. In Hebrew, it just means praise. These were sung from Psalm Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Every festival they were sung. And there was a liturgy that went in Psalm 118. And there was a, there was a, a building celebration in each one of it for, each, for different parts of the festival. And so when you get to Psalm 118, look where it starts, where we started. We started this morning in verse 14. This is a song of thanks. Verse 1, we'll give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It ends with the same sentiment. 
all along the way, they're praising God for what, they, what he has done. But here's the relevant part. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has been, become my salvation. You look to God for strength, for joy, and for salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. This is the peace that passes understanding. This is the joy that is a fruit of the Spirit. Because the right hand of God exalts them, does what is right and true. I shall not die, but I shall live. They sang these words because they knew that life was in their God. They didn't fully understand eternal life yet. There's great fulfillment in this. The Lord disciplined me severely. He disciplines those He loves, Hebrews 12. But He has not given me over to death. There is a promise of life in this psalm. They would sing every year. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. There was these great gates coming into the city of Jerusalem and they would sing this as the processional made its way in. This is the righteous city, the city of God. And give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. There was this, this synonymous picture of the city of Zion, Jerusalem, with God and His people being a righteous people. The Israelites saw themselves as righteous because they kept the law. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A great prophecy about Jesus. And he tells, this is fulfilled in the Pharisees. You have rejected me. I'm the cornerstone, the one that you build everything else off of. This is the Lord's doing, this cornerstone. The one who is the foundation of it all. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. That's the day the Scriptures speak of. The day that the, the, the stone rejected, the one crucified becomes the cornerstone, becomes the foundation of the church, becomes the foundation of the building of a new temple. Rejoice in that day. Rejoice that salvation has come to the people of Israel. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now here's the word that's important. Save us, we pray. One word in Hebrew. Hoshaya na. From where we, transliteration of Hosanna. Save us, we pray. That's what that word means. Hosanna, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. When they're shouting Hosanna, they're quoting this psalm. Save us, we pray. Hoshaya na, Hoshaya na. Save us, we pray. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is this big celebration within the temple as the processional makes its way in. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the offer. We sacrifice to you, O God. We praise you in this offering because of your salvation, because you have heard us, because you hear your people. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. This is what they're singing. These are not words without meaning. This is not one of those empty, redundant play, praise songs about some love affair with Jesus. I hate those things. This is remembering the God who saves His people, who loves His people, who hears His people who is worthy of praise, who is awesome and great and powerful. This is the God who brings His people to Himself. And so when these people 
are seeing this man riding on a donkey with all of this symbolism. This peaceful, come, this peaceful king coming into Jerusalem. They are praising God. Finally, our deliverer has returned. Finally, we're going to get out of Egypt. Finally, we will reign again. And they say these words, Hosanna. Hosanna. One word expressing praise and petition. Save us. I pray. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one. No one can come in the name of the Lord unless the Lord has anointed him. No one can come in the name of the Lord unless the Lord has sent him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are speaking of a divine Messiah. They are speaking of someone anointed by God, sent by God. And what is that Messiah going to be known for? His kingdom. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. There are no accidental details in the the text. Remember last week, we looked at the blind man, Bartimaeus. Son of David, have mercy on me. He's looking to a king. And these people still looking to a king. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The king shall be on the throne in Jerusalem forever and ever. And that king, Hosanna in the highest. Save us, we pray, in the highest. That king is worshipped. That king is exalted. That king is praised the highest. The very throne room of God. They are giving this complete sermon. This complete theological picture of the Messiah and they don't even know it. And even if they didn't fully understand it, this complete message that salvation comes from the Lord who hears His people. Salvation comes through a Savior, Messiah, who's a promised king in the house of Judah. Not an ordinary king, but an exalted king with a glorious kingdom. Savior, Messiah, King who comes from the one and only true God. But they don't know what they're saying. How do we know that? Matthew 21. They are saying these things. Look at Matthew 21, 10 and 11. And we entered Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. They say these words, but they're still thinking of him as merely a prophet. The crowds who are shouting Hosanna, praising the Lord, are still kind of confused. And so then, think about this whole scene that we just described. It's no wonder that when it ends anticlimactically, and he just makes his way quietly to the temple, that the crowds disperse and they're upset. Why do they want to kill him? Why do they hate him? Because they were expecting a conquering king. They were expecting the first half of the prophecy in Zechariah 9 and the second half of the prophecy in Zechariah 9 to happen one after the other. They were expecting him to go into Jerusalem, to take the throne, and to overthrow Rome in a bloody battle so that Israel could continue to reign or begin to reign again, and he doesn't. They're expecting that kind of king, and he let them down. How is it that within one week they can shout Hosanna and shout crucify him? Because if it's a selfish Hosanna, 
for their kingdom and their glory. It's easy to hate the God who does not fulfill their prophecies the way they think they should be done. That he doesn't fall into what, he, what they desire. And he goes straight to the temple. This is the theme of chapters 11 through 13. It will surround around Jesus in the temple. But this time is very telling. He enters the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. He's looking around. He's surveying. And there's a, great weight, there's a great weight on him because as he walks out of Jerusalem, this is symbolic as well. He goes back to Bethany where his friends are, where he lays his head. But what's going through Jesus' mind at this time? I wish someone would tell us. Well, Luke does. Continuing where we picked, off, picked up from, or where we left off in Luke 19. Look at Luke 19, 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will sit up, set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This beautiful scene of praise soon becomes a heartbreaking, heart-wrenching realization that what made for their peace will become their destruction. You can't trust the crowds. They'll gladly show up for a party when they think everything's in their favor. But as soon as it doesn't happen, they're shouting for blood. Because that's what happens with rocky soil. They sprout up, they praise, they get excited, and because they have no root and because there's, there's no nourishment going into their veins, they quickly wither and die. But even the disciples did not fully understand until after the cross. Look quickly at John 12, 16. If anyone serves me, Oh, I put 26. John 12, 16. That was a typo on my end. I'll read it. His disciples did not understand these things. This is right after John's account of the triumphal entry. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Only on this side of the cross can we fully understand this. It would, be, it would have been amazing to be there, but it is even better to look back there. Because we know what it means now. We know who he is now. They were just enjoying the party, but they quickly forgot. Even the disciples didn't understand until Jesus had, had been glorified. And it is only through the resurrection that we understand this. So, application quickly. What does all this symbolism mean for us? If you are a Christian, if you have been born again, if you have gone from death to life, if this king has saved you, see him as your king. He is your triumphant king right now. He is reigning right now. His throne is established in the heavens. It will one day be established on earth and it will never fade away. It will never end. 
we should not just read this as another act of Jesus. Because for the Jews, it was a great letdown. But for us, it is a great proclamation. And we are still proclaiming the Prince of Peace who has come to save sinners. Our King has come. Our King is humble. Our Prince of Peace, our righteous Savior, our mighty God. And if you are in Christ, remember his covenant that Zechariah looked forward to, that Ezekiel looked forward to, that Isaiah looked forward to, that Jeremiah looked forward to, this covenant sealed in his blood, this covenant that saves his people from the waterless pit, the pit of death. And if you are in him and he is righteous, you have his righteousness. He has given it to you. He has saved you from your sin, taken you out of wickedness and brought you into his marvelous light that you might become the righteousness of God. And even though that temple is no longer there, he is the glorious temple. You have come to that temple. You have been made a temple so that God might be worshipped rightly and truly. You can offer acceptable worship because of what Christ has done and you can worship unhindered. No more blood needed because the final sacrifice has been given. The king is also the lamb. The king is also the priest. And his word testifies to it because his ki the king is also the prophet. And you are safe in this king because he has sealed you with your Holy Spirit, with his Holy Spirit. That you will, amen, that you will never be given over to death again. The people of God should be the most joyful people of all. I want you to remember that as we sing our closing hymn, praising Hosanna in the highest. And the people of God should also be an expectant people because our King is coming again. Our King is coming in the full regal splendor of the kingdom of heaven. But this time He's not coming on a donkey in peace. He's coming on a horse with a sword. And He's coming to destroy all of His enemies. And either you will ride with Him in victory or you will fall at the end of the sword. Either you are covered with His blood or you will be covered with your own. But if you are covered with His blood, praise Him. Await His coming. Celebrate, O children of Zion. Let's pray. Awesome you are. How great and mighty and majestic you are. Worthy of all honor and glory and praise. Forgive us when we fail to be joyful. Forgive us when we look more at ourselves than look to you. Forgive us when we complain more than we praise. Forgive us when we trust in the kingdoms of men and the proclamations of men and forget our citizenship in heaven. Forgive us when we look to salvation on this earth and deliverance from our present circumstances as the greatest thing we can attain and forget that you have already attained it for us. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the sacrifice in righteousness. Thank you that the king is also the lamb. Thank you that the temple is no longer needed. That we are blessed in him. The one who has come in the name of the Lord. That we shout Hosanna because we have been saved. And we know that our prayers are heard.
We praise you. All hail the name. We lift up the name of Jesus Christ with every tongue, tribe, and nation throughout all history that he may be glorified, our King. Let's sing to him. Amen.